Well, I will never forget the night that I gave my heart to her. It was the sort of night you give your heart away. The moon was big. The air was warm. Anything seemed possible. And I knew what the reaction would be once I began telling people who had stolen my heart. Her? She's pathetic. A joke. A lost cause. Tim, do not waste your life and talents on her. And I really couldn't blame them for saying those things because I had once said those things. I once believed those things. But like a veil being lifted or curtains being drawn back, that night I saw her for what she is. And that night was 14 years ago. I was 16 years old at the time. And I was standing on the roof of a hotel in, the, in downtown Panama City, Panama. And that night I told God, I don't care where I go. I don't care where I end up. I don't care where you send me. God, I just want to spend my life serving your church. Your church has stolen my heart. So take me wherever you want to take me as long as it's serving your church. That I didn't have words on that night to know what I know now or what I would say now I was feeling on that night. And that is, the church is the hope of the world. And I know, like four of you in this room agree with that statement, right? (laughs) And that's okay. It gives us something to do for the next few minutes. The local church is the hope of the world. Because you see, we tell Jesus' story in a different way than he told it. That if, as we tell Jesus' story, if you've seen a movie about Jesus, it always focuses mostly on his cross. Then maybe, if believers are making the movie, it'll go to the resurrection. But that's it. That's the end. End of story. Right? And so the passion of the Christ. It's two hours of the cross, a brief glimpse of the resurrection. And that's how we tell Jesus' story. But that's not how Jesus told his story. Now, there's this moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them, I'm leaving. I'm going away. But it's okay, because when I leave, it's going to get better. Because you're going to do greater things than I did. The local church is the hope of the world. That's why Jesus looked at his disciples with a straight face and said, I'm the Son of God, but you are going to do greater things than than I did. Listen, I know the church often is a foolish, weak, and divided place. And so I know many of you are saying, Tim, you cannot possibly be serious that you think the local church is the hope of the world. But I do. And this year, as we've been going through the Bible, this Open Here series, we've preached through the Old Testament, we've gone through the life of Christ. And then the story kept going, right? It's October. We're not done. And that's because the story's not over. The story doesn't end with Jesus' resurrection. In fact, the story is just getting started. The story continues with his church. Yes, the church. That place that so often looks foolish, weak, and divisive. And the church is all those things. The church is foolish, it is weak. And it is divisive by itself. But the church isn't by itself. And Acts 2 tells us why. So as we look at Acts 2, let's 
press into that. At first, by itself, the church is foolish. You have to understand, I did not always believe the church was the hope of the world. In fact, as a kid, four, five, six years old, probably most of my childhood, honestly, I tried to get out of going to church most Sundays. And every Sunday, I tried to come up with an excuse as to why just this Sunday, mom, dad, wasn't going to be able to make it. Sorry. Tried hard. Can't do it. And so there was one Sunday morning, though, where I was playing with my dog before church, and the dog, my dog scratched my eye, and I was in a lot of pain. And so I go up to my parents, hand over my eye, and I'm like, Mom, Dad, we got to go to the hospital. I'm in a lot of pain here. This, we, I'm, we cannot go to church. We, we need to go to a doctor. And my mom and dad are like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Like last week when the dog ate your Bible and you couldn't go to church? Okay. And so they take me to church. And I'm sitting in church the whole time with my, just my hand over eye, my head down. My parents must have been thought that I was really sell, trying to sell it that Sunday, right? And I'm just, I'm in pain. And so after church, and finally there's no reason for me to get out of church anymore, my parents realized maybe this is for real this time. <laughs> Go to the doctor. Sure enough, my retina had been scratched. And so I, I couldn't look at light. I was in, really in a lot of pain. And so I had to wear, a, actually had to wear a patch over my eye for, for several days or a couple of weeks after that. Because of, of the scratch in my eye. So yes, kids, I totally look like a pirate for a couple of weeks. And kids, don't lie to your parents to get out of going to church. It's a bad idea. Bad things happen when you do that. So I didn't grow up with this feeling of the church is the hope of the world. Because the church was boring for me. Right? I mean, the music was bad. My dad just fell asleep. And some guy just yelled at me week after week for things I never did. It seemed pointless. It seemed useless. But I didn't see then what I see now. See, at the end of Jesus' life, before, after his death, after his resurrection, he looks at his disciples and he says this to them right before or right at the end of Luke's gospel. He says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In other words, stay in the city, don't move. Right? And that's not surprising because remember what the disciples did right after Jesus' death or, or during the cross, right? I mean, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then committed suicide. Peter denied Jesus to a servant girl who most likely would have been 13 or 14 years old, a grown man denying Jesus to a young girl. And all the other disciples, the ones who had, uh, um, had bragged about who was the greatest and who was the best, they all fled. They all denied. So Jesus, right before uh, he ascends, he, he sort of looks at them and says, don't do anything. You've done enough. Just stay there. Don't, just stay. Don't move. All right, and that's what they do. Right? Because by themselves, they were deniers. And so we flash ahead to Acts 2. And these deniers had gathered. And these deniers were praying. And these deniers were waiting. And in an instant, it all changed. Because by itself, the church is foolish. But the Spirit turns deniers into witnesses. Acts 2 strikes us as strange, right? I mean, you've got this rushing wind, you have flaming tongues. This is weird. 
But but to to understand the story, you have to understand the Old Testament. And that in the Old Testament, there's this story that we actually preached on a few weeks back, or Nathan actually preached on a few few months ago, on the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel had this vision of this valley of dry bones, this valley of death and, and despair. And what God told Ezekiel in that moment was, hey, preach to the wind, Ezekiel, and tell the wind to fill these bones and turn them into people. Which just seems crazy, right? And then in the Old Testament, wind, breath, spirit, all sort of the same word. And so when we, when we read this rushing wind coming into the, the, the church, we think of Ezekiel, of God's breath and life coming into dead bones and bringing life. And here, God's spirit comes into weak, incompetent, foolish disciples who deny Jesus by themselves, but now full of his spirit, preach. And suddenly men who deny Jesus in their own language, start preaching Jesus in languages they didn't know. Which is the whole tongues thing. I know that's the hardest part. But the whole reason these tongues come on these disciples was so that they could begin preaching about Jesus to all of the people who had gathered in Jerusalem, to people from all over the world, so that they could hear in their own languages that Jesus is Lord. So this rushing wind, divided tongues, it's weird, but it's all for the purpose of turning these deniers into witnesses. And one thing we cannot miss this morning is that this same spirit that filled these disciples is in us today, is a part of the church today. That after they're filled with the spirit, people kind of wonder what's going on. Peter stands up to preach and he starts with Joel chapter 2 and a prophecy from Joel chapter 2, which explains everything going on. And the first and last line of that prophecy really explains all that's happening here in verse 17 in Acts 2. Here's what Peter says from the the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And the last line, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is filled with the Spirit of God. And that power and that goodness. Are you starting to see why I think the local church is the hope of the world? But let's be honest, that's where we get cynical, right? Because we don't see a church full of the power of God like this, right? We're like, we don't see a powerful church. We often just see a foolish church. So it's worth asking, why does the church often appear to be a place of weakness instead of a place of power? And there's lots of ways we could answer that question, but just let me offer two reasons this morning. The first one being, if, if we're honest, we don't really think we need the Spirit. I spent my whole life in the church, and if I had never read my Bible, and I, all I had to go on was what I saw Christians in churches doing, I would say that, that broadly speaking, the omission of the American church is to raise nice kids with good morals, who will one day get a good job and be a good productive citizen, who won't raise too much trouble and rock the boat too much. Now, there's not, nothing wrong with most of those things. You just don't need the Spirit to do any of it. You don't need the Spirit for nice kids. You don't need the Spirit for good morals. Honestly, you don't need the Spirit to have a growing church. But you do need the Spirit. If the kids downstairs right now that, that Holly and Jennifer and many of you and our volunteers 
pour out into. We, we do need the Spirit if those kids are going to have a reckless, relentless faith where they love people no one else will love and they will go to places no one else will go to, all to bear witness to Jesus. That we do need the Spirit if our high school and junior high students are going to be powerful, faithful witnesses in the hardest place it is to be a Christian, junior high and high school. That we do need the Spirit if we're going to see Christ's community go from four campuses to 40. That we do need the Spirit if we're going to see 3,000 people in Olathe come to Christ, converted into being Christians. And my guess is many of you say that'll never happen. Because we don't need the Spirit for the church we try and build so often. We dream too small. We set expectations low. And meanwhile, God is unleashing a power into our church that can blow and change this world apart. So by ourselves, we don't think we need the Spirit often. But, but second, I think, I think we often miss God's power at work. Because God's power often comes in the ordinary. Or that Jesus is born in a manger. That, that Jesus worked much of his life as a carpenter. Right? And then many of us might say, well, that's a colossal waste of the infinite power of God, right? building tables somewhere. And yet Jesus didn't. That the first person full of the Spirit in the book of Exodus was full of the Spirit to build a temple, to build a building, be a construction worker. That God's power often comes in the ordinary. Let me illustrate this one way that this has worked recently in Olathe, here at our campus. And it's simple. There was someone in the church who saw someone else they knew and, and said, hey, why don't you come to our community group? We'd love for you to be a part of our community group. Probably a conversation or an invitation that person's had hundreds of times. It's a simple throwaway statement. Come to our community group. But the person who heard that invitation heard something much different. What they heard has changed their life. They've gone from a, a person who is nominally a Christian or someone who knows a bit about Jesus to someone who is a, a, a committed to the life of this church now. Because God can work in a weird, small, throwaway conversation that you didn't think a second thing about. Or Nathan and I were chatting this week, and we both had this experience where we've been preaching, and, and maybe it's that Sunday or a couple weeks later, someone will come up to us and just say, you know, when you said this, I just want you to know that that changed my life. And I haven't been the same person since. God is just at work in my life. It just, it unleashed something. It just showed me something. So thank you. Thank you for saying this. And we both, Nathan and I both had those moments where we're thinking, I never said that. <laughs> Or maybe I did. Because the Spirit can take ordinary statements. Things that I think I'm just, my mouth is just moving. Things are just coming out. And the Spirit can take those small words and do great things. See, by ourselves, the church is foolish. But the Spirit can take us and go take deniers, take, take people who just so often leave, we just don't believe in the power of God. We can take, he can take deniers and make us into witnesses. So that's first. But second, by itself, the church is weak. And four years after that night in, in Panama, I took my first job as a paid staff person in a church as a part-time youth pastor in a small town in, in Illinois. And 
I was in college, so obviously I knew everything at that point. Um, I was brilliant. Everybody else noticed it, right? That's sarcasm in case we're not, we're not clear on that. But, um, and, and so when I went to that church, I just had these big dreams, big visions. I was going to turn that little church upside down, right? And, and when I got there, I was not ready for what I was walking into. Divorce. Eating disorders. All kinds of sexual abuse. Serious anger and brokenness. And I can't tell you how many times I was sitting in my chair across from another adult or across from a kid and just feeling helpless and weak and powerless with nothing to say, nothing to offer to get that person out of the mess they were in. And what I didn't understand then that, that I do now is that's, that's actually a really good place to be. Because by, by myself, I am weak. I can't change anything. I can't do much of anything. But I'm not by myself. And as a church, we are not by ourselves. And you sense Jesus wanted to make this clear to the disciples. Because lots of times, he says, listen, I'm leaving, but you're not by yourselves. And so the last recorded words of Jesus in Acts 1.8, as he's ascending into heaven to leave and to, for, for the last time until he comes back, he looks at his disciples and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. That Jesus looks at these deniers and he says, from the place where I stand right now to the very last corner of the earth, the gospel, the good news of who I am and what I've done is going to go out and nothing's going to stop it. Not you and not anyone who will oppose you. This message will go from where I stand to the ends of the earth. What good news? Because by ourselves, the church is weak. But the Spirit empowers the church to never fail. And I know what you're thinking. Never fail. Tim, you're overpromising here. Too much. And certainly, when we start reframing what the church is, we do fail, right? Because a lot of times, the success or the power of the church gets worked into, hey, if you're a Christian, you'll be perfect, and you'll get lots of money, and you'll be healthy, and you'll get healed, and God's power will work in your life in all sorts of incredible ways. And maybe it will. I don't know. But, but the reason God unleashes his power onto the church is not for us individually. It's so us corporately can be witnesses to Jesus to the end of the earth. That's why we exist. That's why God's power, among many reasons, is poured out onto his church through the Spirit. And so that raises the question, okay, well, what are we exactly supposed to bear witness to? What does it mean to bear witness? And I love Peter's sermon here because... Peter's sermon basically has two points. And point one, which comes in verses 23 through 25, it's just simple. It's, hey, everybody, you killed Jesus. Turns out he was God, and he's not dead anymore. <laughs> Normally that's really bad news, right? When you find out that someone that you killed was actually God, and they're not dead. <laughs> right? That's how horror movies begin, right? Because now that person's chasing you, and you can't run away from them. Right? I know what you did last summer. I mean, that, that, that is exactly the sort of beginning of a bad story. But that's not where Peter goes. That's not where his sermon ends. And what's interesting is the people he looks at and says, you all killed Jesus, they probably weren't the ones there in Jerusalem shouting out, crucify him. 
And it's important for us to, to catch there in that moment is that if the Bible says anything, it's that every human being who has ever lived is responsible for the death of Jesus on his cross. It doesn't matter if you live in 2013 in Olathe or back in, 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 in this day in Acts 2. It doesn't matter. Your sin is responsible for the death of Jesus. And that's really bad news for us. Until you get to the invitation Peter offers. Which isn't just, hey, if you work really hard, God will overlook the fact that you killed him. It's not the message. That's not the message. And these people feel it and they cry out, okay, Peter, what do we do? What do we do? And Peter looks at them and he says, repent, be forgiven, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, you killed God. That's okay. He wants to come and live with you. He wants to come and rest on you. The enemies of God can become his temples. The place of his presence, the place of his joy, his grace, his goodness. And that's the good news that, that should fill the church. That the ones who killed God can have his very presence. And yet, again, cynic me starts asking the question, but Tim, that we don't often see the church as a place where the Holy Spirit is bearing witness and, and conversion is happening in, in great ways. So why not? Why do we not always see a spirit empowering the church to never fail? Again, many ways to answer that question, but let's just, at least let me be honest. Um, one reason we don't see the power of God at work is we don't bear witness. Let me ask the question, is who is the last person who doesn't know Jesus that you bore witness to about Jesus? And I know, like, I'm a pastor, so you're thinking, well, you probably do it all the time, don't you? you know, and I don't. As a pastor, most of my time has been around Christians. And, and I've, I've just, this week I was just deeply convicted of how do, I, how do I order my life in a way that I'm entering into the lives of, of others to bear witness of the good news of Jesus. So we don't bear witness like we should. And I, I think there are a couple reasons for that, that, that we should press into. One is that, let's be honest, as Christians, we often make witnessing really weird for other people. Right? I can't tell you how many times someone has come up to me and, and said, Tim, have you ever invited Jesus into your heart? And I'm a Christian. I'm like, no. Not sure I want to either. Right? Like, like the only thing that I invite into my heart is bacon and donuts. Right? That's it. Not inviting Jesus into my heart. That's strange. We make it awkward. And, and it's okay to, as we approach others to want to do so. We need to do so in a way that's contextually relevant, that's not weird for others. But second, if we were really honest, we would say we don't bear witness to Jesus because we think we're alone. We don't think the Spirit really truly rests on us. And so we look at the person across from us and we think, I can say something, but it won't make any difference. They're too far gone. Or I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted. I don't have the right thing to say. We think in those moments we're alone, and so we just skip a step from them rejecting the gospel. We just save the burden of actually telling it to them, since they'd reject it anyway. So what does witnessing look like then, right? I mean, we, we struggle with this. So what does it look like? When I was at Starbucks, um, I worked with a kid whose name was Ben, and Ben was 
probably the angriest person I've ever met in my life. And Ben confessed things to me that I've had no one else confess to me um, in my life. His, his life was deeply broken. He hated Christians and he hated the church. And there was one day where, there's actually a lot of days, but one day in particular where some customer was just really rude to us, really mean, a jerk at the drive through window. And, and Ben was ready to jump through the window and commit felonies on this guy. And, and I'm trying to hold Ben back a little bit and and we just, we just try and, you know, I'm just trying to send the guy on his way. He hates me. I don't particularly like him, so why are we still talking to one another? That's kind of the feeling I had. And, and, and we couldn't get him to leave. Finally, he left, and we're processing the whole thing. And, and Ben looks at me, and he says, Tim, I've never seen you get angry at a coworker or a customer. Why not? And I felt in that moment, I knew in that moment, it was a chance to bear witness, to tell my story. But it's Ben. He's angry. He hates Christians. This will just be weird. And so I crack some lame joke about, you know, well, when customers act like jokes, you just have to laugh at them and move on. Right? And, and, I, and that's what I said. And, and Ben looked at me and he's like, no, I'm serious. Why do you never get angry? So I bore witness. And I told Ben if he had known me early in my life, he wouldn't say that about me. He would have seen a kid, a, a guy with a foul mouth who screamed at other people, even his close friends and his parents, who had anger problems that were deep. And I don't know when it happened, I don't know why it happened, and I don't know how it happened. It certainly wasn't me, I know that. And God just stopped giving me reasons to be angry. And so I looked at Ben, and I said, Ben, I'm not angry anymore because God saved me from it. And Jesus went to his cross, and I'm a different person because of it. And Ben, hater of Christians, looked at me and said, that makes sense. And I don't know if that conversation will do any earthly good or any heavenly good. Or I don't know if Ben is a Christian somewhere worshiping in a church right now. I just know there was a moment, and I was not alone in that moment. And if God wanted to take my words and use them in ways to, to bring power and do my incredible things, then great. He can do that. I can't. And that's okay. Because it's not my job. And so, by ourselves, we're weak. Which is why we don't often bear witness to Jesus. And, and one thing we need to remember is that any time... We're sitting in that chair across from the person that we think is so broken and so lost and so far gone. We need to remember the, the, the words of Jesus in Acts 1.8 where he said that, that from where I stand right now, this message, this gospel is going to go from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into Asia, and into Africa, and into Europe, and then across the pond into the United States, and then into the Midwest, and then into Olathe, into the chair you're sitting in right now. So that the same God who was on Peter to convert 3,000 in one day is on you right now if you're a Christian. You're not alone. So don't act like it. Don't bear witness as if it will do no good because that's not your job. It's your job to be faithful and to be full of the Spirit in faith that God will take your small words and do great things. So by itself, the church is weak. Before the Spirit, the church will never fail. So lastly, by itself, the church is divided. 
And my guess is I don't need to prove this point to anybody. The church proves this point pretty well on its own. And in fact, in all honesty, there are probably many of you who are sitting there thinking through the local church of the hope of the world, and that just, you, that hits you, and, and you really, that hurts. Because you have stories of Christians or churches that have deeply wounded you. And I just wanted to say for a moment that, that if, if there's a space where you need to chat or you need a pastor to take it out on, I can take it. I can take it. Because by itself, the church is divided. But more than that, when we read Acts 2, 42 through 47, right? The, the, the Christians, they devoted themselves together. They prayed together. They were gathering together. They were snuggling with bunnies, and it was great. <laughs> right? We're like, uh, I've never been to that church, right? And we read that, and we're cynical. Like, it, it deepens my cynicism. And I'll be honest, I'm in a church right now where I do think that the Acts 2, 42 through 47 is embodied. That, that's my experience here at Christ Community. I hope it's yours. But I know for many, the church is not that experience. And so we, we read that passage and we're just like, what went wrong? Right? What happens? Why is the church off in this place of deep division? And one mistake we often make is that we look at the, the Bible and we only read passages like Acts 2, right? Where everything's right. And we forget there are plenty of examples in the New Testament of the church really being bad, to not put it in any other better way, right? And then there's two, letter, or two letters Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and that church was messed up. People in the church were suing one another. There was all sorts of, of sexual sin that, that was happening. Um, they were arguing about all sorts of ridiculous things. The, the, the main one being they were arguing over who the best preacher in their church was. Talk about weirdos. I mean, that's a strange thing to argue about. And so Paul writes these two letters, and they are filled with really hard words, right? And as you read the letter, you just feel Paul's exasperation, right? Stop suing one another, right? Stop sleeping with people you're not married to. Stop arguing. Just stop it, right? You get that as you read that letter. And yet, as you read through those two letters, there's no cynicalness. There's no hopelessness. Paul's not writing as if this is just the end and, well... I guess it's the best we can do. That's not how Paul writes. In fact, as, as Paul writes, he gets to this place in 1 Corinthians 15. And there, they had messed up the belief in the resurrection. As far as Christian belief go, that's an easy one, right? Jesus is alive. He's coming again. Pretty easy. But they had messed that up, and they were arguing over it. And so Paul is defending the resurrection, and he gets to this moment where he, he's writing to them, this church that's divided, this church, some of whom hate Paul and want to see Paul never come back and don't respect Paul in any way. About these people, Paul says, and he writes to them, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. Those people suing one another, bickering with one another, they will all be changed. And you can almost see Paul as he writes this 
in his mind's eye, just picturing those people who had said hateful things to him, people who were suing one another, people who were committing all sorts of, of terrible things. Paul's thinking about those people, and he's saying, they will be changed. They will be made right. And that's why he can say at the end of that letter, therefore, every work that you give to the church is not in vain. So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 58, Therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How can he say that when you look at the church? It's because Paul knows the end of their story. That in the church surrounding you right now is people, our people, who will one day be perfect. And they, some of them may have sinned against you, and you haven't forgiven them. Some of them are going to be hard to forgive. Some of them have said hateful things. Some of them you've hurt. And Paul, as he's dealing with a, a church of division, he just says, just remember where we're headed. That we all start here, we progress, and someday we will be the perfect image of Christ. And that's why I give my life to the church. Because I know there's nothing else I can give my life to where I know the ending. And there are days when the ending seems a long way off for myself and for others. But I know the ending for everyone who calls on Jesus. It is perfection. It is completion. It is wholeness. It is everything made right. And if that's true, how can you not forgive? How can you not devote to the lot, your life to the, to the church, to the people around you, knowing that everything you give to them, the Spirit will use to make them right and make them new. And everything they give to you will make you right and make you good. Because everyone in this room who calls on Jesus as Lord will one day, in a moment, be perfect, be whole and right. Because by itself, the church is divided, but the Spirit brings unity to a diverse church. So you're starting to believe me. The local church is the hope of the world. Listen, I know many of you will still have good reasons to dismiss the church, but before you do, where I want to leave us is this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is Lewis, a Christian. He's writing this as a fictional book as if he's a senior demon telling a junior demon how to tempt a Christian. I know, really interesting, kind of, kind of strange, but it's, it's an incredible book. And there's one point where the senior demon is writing this letter saying, here's how you make this guy not be a Christian. You, t- you make him look at the church. That will get him out of it. And, and so Lewis then, as the senior demon, writes this about the church. He says, one of our, speaking of demons here, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. But do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church, as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banner. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patience sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. Do you see what Lewis is saying? 
He's saying, if you want a reason to dismiss the church, you'll find one in any Christian, or a couple of Christians, or a church, or a couple of church. That if you look deep enough into my life, you'll find something to dismiss the whole thing. Maybe it's my sarcasm. Maybe it's that I'm not generous enough. Maybe I don't support my wife in, in the way that I should. Maybe I'm too selfish. You'll find something. It's there. Or you can do that with any church. But what you'll be doing in that moment, and what you're looking at right now, is not a finished work. You're looking at a building half done, half finished, not complete, with lots of work to be done. Some sanding down, some new finish, lots of work. As you could look at me and say, what a wreck. He's a preacher, for crying out loud. And that's fine. You're right. But you don't know that I, I started here, the Spirit's brought me here, and He's taking me there. That one day I'll be right, made right. And so don't look at the church and see the work in progress. If you see the work in progress and you think that's all there is, you'll, you'll dismiss it. See what's coming. See the end of the story. See the church spread out for 2,000 years where people like me have found hope when there is none. People who are broken have found healing. People who were once enemies of God are now filled with His Spirit. Because the history of the church is not just sin, it is goodness and God's power poured out changing lives and bringing hope. And that's why the church is the hope of the world because it's driven by God's Spirit. And that no matter how many mistakes we make, the gospel we carry, the witness we bear is too good to be stopped. It's too powerful to be stopped. And so by itself, the church is foolish, weak, and divided. But we're not by ourselves. So do you believe me? The local church is the hope of the world. 